The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father God, we are your church gathered here before you, your people, the sheep of your pastor. By your will, by your power, we are your people. And so we say thank you, and we also turn to you and say it is then your job to feed us. You have brought us into your fold, and you have obligated yourself to be shepherd, to be the provider, to be the sustainer of life. And so we come to you with a request that that highly honors you because it's the request that you want us to bring to you. We, We come to you and say, feed your sheep. Feed us. Break open for us the bread of life. Nourish our souls with it. Quench our thirst with living water. That's your job. And you have provided the means to do it. And so we ask you in faith and in hope, would you pour out your Spirit on us and connect us to the source of life and cause us to eat and to drink, to be filled and to live. Feed us your sheep. Lord, I was struck by a phrase that we sang earlier about sowing in fields of hope and reaping in heaven. What we do right now, Lord, is we sow in a field of hope that you will take your word and that you will use it to build your people individually and as a church towards a great harvest that will only be fully gathered in in heaven. So take your word, Lord, and feed us, grow us, plant good seed in us and grow it up and bring it to fruition. It will be harvested for ages and ages and ages to come to your glory. Lord, we, your people here, are coming from all kinds of different places right now. We have many different things that are on our minds. Some of us are daydreaming, even at this moment. Some of us are deeply burdened by concerns, physical or spiritual. Some of us aren't sure why we're here. Some of us are here desperate to meet you. From all different places, Lord, will you sit directly in front of the individual people in this room? And will you commune face to face with them through your word? Sown in hope here that that will happen. Will you bring it to fruition? Build your church, I pray. Feed your church, I pray, for Christ's glory and for the good of your church. Amen. We've been working through the book of Deuteronomy in hopes that God will use it to form us. To form you individually, but to form us. The community of God. That He would take this book 
My hope is that He would take this book and He would form us, this covenant community, a community that is in covenant with Him, and with each other a little bit too, but especially in covenant with Him, that He'll form us from this book. That is, in fact, how He used the book of Deuteronomy way back when it first came about. The people of God were gathered on the banks of the Jordan River. He uses this book to form them into a community, explaining to them, this is what you are to be. I have called you to myself. This is what I mean for your life to look like, for what I mean to mark you. So my hope is that he would use this to form Salt Lake Evangelical Free Church into the community that pleases him, particularly into a holy community. Remember that we launched into this book after seeing something on, on that thread in the book of Acts, how the, the holiness of the community was, was a remarkable fact that drew people to it. They noted that people lived with God as their primary concern. That they lived intent on following Him and on living lives that were conformed to Him. They noticed that. It marked them and it drew people. So may He use that book towards that end in us. We've been working through this book, and we've come now to this, this largest section of the book, beginning in chapter 12, that contains all the specific codes and statutes and rules and commandments. We've been reading about them for some time. They're coming up, and now they're here. This is the, the civil law code of the nation of Israel. And the, two weeks ago, in chapter 12, we saw the first piece of that, where to worship. The place to worship. And as we worked through that and, and kind of kept walking through redemptive history, we realized that all of that actually is pointing towards the place to come and worship is Jesus. It's pointing ahead at the temple, but He's the new and better temple. The place that God and man meet and call us to worship. And so we talked about joyful lives of worship. That two weeks ago, and then last week we took a detour out of Deuteronomy to look at the book of Ephesians, continuing on in that life of joyful worship. We saw there God commanding us to be filled by the Spirit. To have the Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, exercising dominant control over our insides. And when that happens, joyful worship is the life that follows. That was last week, and now we're back in Deuteronomy. And our passage this morning is one of those passages that if you read ahead, probably created a bit of curiosity. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 13, it's possible that you thought, what are we going to do with this? Because it has some interesting stuff in it. There's some, there's some sobering material in, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, as there will be re- periodically throughout the whole rest of the book. And because, as we, we come to this sort of thing, and as modern people, it easily leaves us confused, maybe a little bit upset at God, as we read it and kind of process it, and we kind of develop an image of God, Because it does that sometimes for us, and certainly for somebody who wrote a letter to the editor in yesterday's paper, calling out different passages out of the law, ridiculing them, that that person, I, I don't think, had any genuine curiosity, but was asking many sarcastic questions about, what do you do with this? And what do you do with this? And what do you do with this? And how do you handle that? And what kind of God is that? And what does that mean about the Bible? It was That was the tone, if not exactly the questions of this letter. So certainly out there, sometimes even here, this creates some tension for us, some confusion. So, without pretending to answer all those questions, I want to make a couple of comments before I read this passage. I'm going to be very brief comments here. 
First, we are indeed going to read and wrestle through Deuteronomy chapter 13 because it is God's holy word. It is not some archaic document that's locked up in some barbaric culture such that now we modern and enlightened people know better and can skip it. It's not. This is the word of the eternal, wise, just, gracious God. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. They're, They're not two different gods. There is just as much grace in the Old Testament and just as much sober warning in the New Testament. They are the same God. One God, eternal, unchanging forever and ever. And this is His Word, eternal and unchanging forever and ever. And so we must deal with it, and we will. And as the Scripture says, all Scripture, including Deuteronomy 13, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's in the New Testament, talking about among other passages, Deuteronomy 13. So we have to deal with this, and we should deal with it. It's good for us, and we will deal with it. But, second observation, in saying that this is an unchanging word, we do not mean that it is static, wooden. The text itself is replete with material that says change is coming. The whole thing is prophetic. The whole thing assumes and is trying to get across the message that there is a time coming when drastic change will come. So we don't mean that that nothing changes. In fact, we assume that much changes. So when we, when we deal with this and we study it, we have to keep in mind, and we're trying to figure out, okay, what has God said here? We've got to figure out what He said in light of everything that He has said. Particularly, what He said in Jesus. This thing that's moving along, it, it comes eventually to a dramatic pinnacle. Christ. And when God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, becomes a human being, not the other way around, man never becomes God. That's a heresy. When God becomes man, when the second person of the Trinity becomes the guy named Jesus, he grabs hold of the hands of the clock of redemptive time and drastically moves them. Things advance significantly. He comes and he affects change, not in the nature of God, not in what God values, not in the person of God, and therefore not in the moral law. If you think moral law, it's a theological term, think Ten Commandments. It comes right out of the character of God. That is unchanging because God is unchanging. But there are a number of things that significantly change when Christ comes, who is the end of the law, the one the law is pointing to, the the terminus of the law. And when He comes, He changes something significantly. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So I'm going to leave that hanging. I'm not not going to answer that question. 
We'll come to that later. But there is change in this. Not in God's character, not in God's moral law, not in God's word, but in how the moral law gets lived out because of what Christ has done. So we are going to deal with this. And there is change on the scene, although not in the nature of God or in the Word of God. With that as a backdrop, let me read the text. When you see the, the sobering things in it, keep those two things in mind. Realize that it is for our good. We will deal with it for our good. We will learn from it. But there is something that has changed. Let me read Deuteronomy Chapter 13, and then I'll pass back through it after I read it to make sure we understand the details before moving on to some overarching thoughts. Chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their cities, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. 
It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be rebuilt again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 13, the unchanging word of the Lord. The passage consists of three distinct sections which each address the same issue at at different levels. It's all kind of the, the same thing. The basic issue here is the temptation of the luring away of the people of God from wholehearted allegiance to the Lord their God to some other God. Some other God that they have not known. The deceiver says, verse 2, let us go after other gods and serve them. Other gods that we have not known. That's verse 2. It's also verse 6. Let us go and serve other gods that neither you nor your fathers have known. It's verse 13 again, almost word for word, making this, this point here with the repetition. Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. That's the issue. Someone or someones within the community, within the covenant community, speak or act in some way or another that has the effect of attempting to lure the people of the covenant community, the people of God, away from the Lord their God, the one they know, to serve and follow and give their hearts and their love to some other God somewhere else. When they have not known, it's repeated throughout. And know does not mean one you have not heard of. This is not a, not a question of, of intellect. No, here, as very often the Bible speaks to relationship, as when you think about how the virgin has not known a man, doesn't mean she's not met any man, it means she has not known a man. Or when it talks about how God knows his people but does not know the other peoples of the earth, it is not an intellectual issue. God knows everything about everybody. But he knows his relationship with his own people. That's what's being talked about here. A God that you have not known is the God out there. Now, the the gods, verse 7 makes clear that they would be the gods, perhaps even of of the Canaanites right next to them, right on the other side of the river. And as the text reveals, they were very familiar with those gods. They're going to go to their worship sites and tear them down. They know who they are. They know where they're worshipped. They're familiar. It's a relationship question. You know this God. And you're being lured away from some other God. So what's, what's on the line here is something that is analogous to adultery or treason. A relationship exists. And you're being invited to... To break that and go after, to give your heart and your allegiance to someone else. To something else. So, which commandment is this about? The first commandment. Number one is in jeopardy here. Remember chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Where the the Ten Commandments begin with the lead-in verse... That sets the context, and then the first commandment, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. That language is repeated here twice, in verses 5 and verse verse 5 and in verse 10. Back in chapter 5, he says, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, have no other God before me. The leading and the first commandment. I'm the one who has acted. I have acted to deliver, to save you out of bondage, out of slavery. I then am the only one that you can give your hearts to. You know me. Do not go anywhere else. That's the issue. And it's repeated here in this passage. Same thing as in chapter 6 with the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. It's right here as well. It's a test to see if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. The first commandment is at issue here. And there are people within the community that say, Ah, let's leave that one and go give our hearts to something else. It is an invitation to disaster. The fundamental prime directive in all of the life of all of the people of God is that your allegiance must be total towards the Lord. And there are some people within that community who are deliberately inviting you to reject that. It is a drastic challenge. In the language of the passage, it is evil, wicked, abomination, rebellion. Words used throughout the passage to describe this. And it can come from a number of different sources. The first one, verses 1 to 5, it might come from a religious leader of some sort. A prophet or a dreamer of dreams. And in saying dreamer of dreams, he's not being insulting. He's not, he's not giving something kind of flippant. That those are two ways that God commonly spoke with people in the Old Testament. Think about how often he spoke to the fathers through dreams. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What he's saying is, if there's somebody who claims to be communicating with God in, in a prophetic or in a prophetic situation or in a dream, and he says something or tries to perform some sort of a miracle, and it actually happens, the text, notice, is not disputing the miraculous power. It actually happens, and if it happens, and is, is amazing and a remarkable sign and, and it really draws your attention, you should recognize that, yeah, that might actually be spiritual power. There are other spiritual powers out there. Not everything miraculous is from God. But it is all under God. It's all under His control, as verse 3 implies. When it says that this is a test of you, the only way it's a test of you is if God is over it and has decided... I'm going to let this happen for a purpose, the test. If he's going to let it happen, it means that he could decide to not let it happen. He's in charge of it. It exists under his control. He's testing. But they do do indeed do miraculous stuff. The only way to determine if it is from God or not is by what they say. Does it match the word of God? God who has revealed Himself in this deliverance of you out of Egypt, who spoke His Word to you off of Mount Horeb, the one you know, if what they say does not invite you to that one, it's false, no matter how much miracle is tacked onto it. You have to reject that. Purge the evil from your midst, verse 5, by killing them could come from some religious leader or it could come the second situation in the next verses at 6 to 11. 
It's from somebody very close to you. So you might say the first one addresses, will you be influenced by miraculous power? The next one is, will you be influenced by emotional sentiment? This next section, people who are close to you, and it's verse 6 emphasizes, he means like really close. Your brother, your children, the wife you embrace, implying really embrace. That close. A friend that you would call a bosom buddy. Somebody who is your soulmate. So the first, the first situation is, is the shazam of the public miracle, the display of power that might make you want to say, well, maybe I should listen to that. And the second one is the total opposite. It's, it's whispered. It's pillow talk. Quiet. This person who is so close and so intimate to you says, honey, Come with me. Let's go after this other God. Is that going to draw you away? The reaction must be no. And it's, and it's very clear. This, this is, I think, perhaps the most shocking part of, of the whole passage. The repetition, assuming this close and intimate relationship, the repetition of the hard line, You shall not pity, you shall not yield, you shall not spare, you shall not conceal, but you shall kill. Nice. Hard. Someone pillow talk whispers to you. And you've got all the warmth, you can feel the warmth of their body right there next to you. And when they say that, let's go after some other God. The implication is you get out of bed and respond starkly against that. That, That's really hard. I think the degree to which that strikes us as odd is going to reflect what we value. The intimacy of that relationship or the Lord your God that you have known. He's trying to pick the situation that it is hardest to divide and to draw a very hard line. If anyone does not love me more than parent or child or spouse or bosom buddy, he is not worthy of me. What he's saying here. This must be responded to. This person must be cut off so that, verse 11, this type of wickedness will never be done in the land again. And if it's not responded to, then the third situation might arise which is not the the public, it's not the private, intimate thing, it's large scale. If the first couple situations aren't dealt with properly, a number of people in the community are drawn along and enticed and, and kind of get on the bandwagon, and pretty soon what you have is you have a whole city that's in this place. There are a few ringleaders, but they have persuaded the whole city to turn away and follow after this other God and depart from the Lord their God. And he says, if you hear about that, Check it out to make sure that it's true. Investigate it. Find out. But if, in fact, it is true that the control of this city has reverted back to the enemy, I gave this city to you out of the idols of the land, and if what's happened is that it's turned back and it's back under their control, what you are to do is the same utter hard-line reaction. Utterly destroy them. Kill everything, burn everything, never build there again. Wipe it out. 
Verse 17. And when you do that, you will turn away from the whole community. You will turn away the fierce anger of the Lord. And his blessing will again flow to the people. His blessing of mercy and compassion. His his promises to multiply you and grow you in this place will again come about if you obey and walk with him. What he's saying is you cannot expect the blessing of God while rejecting my commandment and tolerating and even embracing this message. As you trust him and therefore don't go after the other gods to serve him, you will experience his blessing and so purge the evil from your midst. That's Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I think that it probably makes, at least parts of it, make a lot of us uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but it's difficult to wrestle with. But that's the text. It's clearly addressing holiness in the people of God. It is clearly saying, you must give total allegiance to the Lord your God. It's calling us to that. Structurally, it's not complicated. but Conceptually, it's kind of hard. So let me try to approach it with this sentence and making a couple observations about the, the two main commands in it. So let me give an overarching sentence here, my main point for this morning. The Lord our God commands us to purge the evil from our midst. That's, I think, pretty clearly what chapter 13 is after. The Lord our God commands us to purge the evil from our midst. I'm going to work towards that by, by drawing out the two basic commands, the, the two general thrusts of this passage. Let me start with the first one. The Lord commands us, and be sure to write down, and woos us, that is, entices us. The Lord commands us and woos us to personally Resist this temptation to evil. Commands us to personally resist this temptation to evil. We're dealing with in the passage is in fact evil. And and none of it's going to make any sense if you don't really believe that. It is evil. The problem is that a lot of us in our age tend to lose sight of the issue as soon as the idea of stoning anybody comes up. That then becomes the whole issue when we start to think about, man, that seems really harsh. How can we do that? How, what, do we, what do we think about that? And we lose the whole rest of it. And by comparison, it seems like, how should we, how can we justify putting anybody to death? Something's way out of whack here. We lose what it is that we're talking about. This is evil. It is wicked. It is an abomination. We so, I talk to, I interact with many people, you read the newspaper, all kinds of people. We are extremely concerned that our kids not be exposed to drugs in the hallways at school or swine flu in the nursery. That's dangerous. But to think about our kids being in a community where they are being lured away to to depart from the Lord their God they know to follow some other God, that surely is not nearly this serious. Think about that. Would you rather your kid get swine flu or follow this advice? Which is more dangerous? 
we react as if the swine flu is more dangerous. Or the drugs in the hallway. Or the promiscuity that, that lures them along. It's not. The issue of is their heart, is our heart going to be fastened to the Lord? We know that is the issue. This is, and any attempt to, to break us away from that is evil. It is death at the doorstep. Physically even, and certainly spiritually. Where is the previous generation of these guys? Dead in the wilderness. Why? Unbelief. The Lord their God brought them up out of Egypt, and at the door of Canaan they said, mm, No. We're going to follow after some other God. And he said, then you will die here. If you depart from me, I am life. you depart from me, you will die here. Physically even. You experience physically the cursing. But spiritually all the more. To depart from Him is to depart from life. The lure away from the one you have known is the lure towards death. This is critical. It's worthy of our highest reaction. Any attack on the first commandment is an attack on your very life. You have to see that. Because none of the rest is going to make any sense if you don't really believe that. There is a threat here and the Lord commands you personally to resist it. With every fiber in your being, no matter where it originates, to personally resist it. You point to verse 3, you shall not listen. Or verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen. There's the command. Don't listen. Don't give any credence to it. Whenever anything or anyone arises to attempt to lure you to break the first commandment, do not yield to that. It is his clear command. But more than, this is why I said we've got to write down and woos. Because more than just a command in a voice of authority, he's wooing also. What's the, what's the lure to go after these other gods? That, that something's going to go well with you. That this is where you can find some sort of a blessing or some sort of a benefit. And God says, I, we, I'll engage at that level. Let's talk about blessing and benefit. Very good. Let's do that. Who is it that brought you out of the land of slavery and delivered you out of the house of bondage? Who was that? Them or me? Me. I did that. Why? Because I had to? No. I mean, I had to keep my promise, but I didn't have to make the promise to Abraham. I made a promise out of love. I chose to make a promise, and I am faithful to that promise, and that's why you were delivered by me. Delivered to what? Well, I carried you through the wilderness, did I not? Who fed you? Who clothed you? Who gave you water to drink? Again, me. To bring you to what? This land of bounty. Who did that? Me. And beyond, above, far surpassing all of that, I've promised you my presence. I promise that you will be my people and I will be your God and we will be joined and hope will fill your heart. I'll remove your sin from you and give you life eternal. Not just life here in this land. I'm going to give that to you. What do they have to offer you exactly? Now, my, my tone there is maybe a little bit might sound like a little bit of exasperation in it. Probably should change that because that's not wooing. 
I mean, I'm not very good at that. But, but there, there's two ways. That, what I'm trying to get across here is two ways God communicates. Command, do not do that. Woo. Why in the world would you do that? Think about this. Now, we, brothers and sisters here, we don't look back to the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and say, that's great. We look back to the deliverance of the people of God. For us, what is that? The cross. And we preach the gospel to ourselves. Connecting all kinds of other stuff in the past that I've talked about with today. We preach the gospel to ourselves. That's how God sits down with us to woo us. Son, daughter, I know there is someone, something, some ones around you, luring you, inviting you. Come over here. Life's over here. Let's sit and talk about that for just a minute. And in his best wooing voice, God is a much better wooer than I am. He'll say, son, daughter, who delivered you? Who picked you up? He uses some graphic image in some of the prophets about a baby, a newborn baby abandoned right after birth, sitting there in its blood. Who found you and picked you up and wiped all the blood off and patted you on the back to knock that stuff out of you so you could breathe and fed you and carried you and nurtured you throughout all of your life and provided every single thing you could conceivably need? Who developed a relationship with you person to person? Who did that? Them or me? Me. Is there anything in that? Leaving the imagery of the baby moving to the cross. Is there anything in the cross that would incline you to reasonably think that I'm out to get you? By no means. Is there anything in there that would incline you to believe that I might lack power to deliver you or lack interest in delivering you? No. There's nothing there. Is there anything there in that that would lead you to believe that my arm is only this long but too short to save from that situation? Or that I'm most inclined to abandon you? Or that I'm not really one who loves you? Look at it. He gave you Christ. Will He not along with Him also give you all things? What do they have to offer you? Nothing. He'll command and He will also fight at the level of desire. I'm the one who meets it. I have delivered you from sin. I have brought you into my family. You stand in grace. You are my beloved child. Why would you go anywhere else? What is there to have anywhere else? Nothing. There's nothing to have anywhere else. There's some bells and whistles hung on that miracle over there, but behind it is nothing. There's a warm body in bed and some intimacy there, and behind it is the grave. Don't go there. He commands and He woos. He commands and He woos us to resist this temptation to evil. And if you're going to fight against that, what you have to do is listen to both the command and the wooing. Sometimes you won't hear the wooing and the command is, tells you, this is where I have to stand, even though it makes no sense at the moment. I have to stand right here next to Him. That's a command. But I think probably what will sustain you over the long haul of life is to listen to the wooing. I think that because of... 
passages like Romans that talk, Romans 2 talk about how His kindness leads us to repentance. We, we are fed on grace. He wants to get that message across to us of His love and His grace for His people. So I think that's the one you need to most consistently listen to. And how you listen to that is you preach the gospel to yourself. You take yourself back to the cross and say, look at what He has done for me, changing my eternity. Will He not also with Him give me all things? Will He not also, same chapter, Romans 8, will He not also work all things for my good? What can separate me from His love? Nothing. Why would I depart from Him? Only when you forget that does the offer out here make any sense. So you fight that, not just by saying no, but by saying yes to this one. The passage says, if this happens, and if this happens, really we probably could write when. When this happens, because life is full of it. You don't even need other people to be out there because it's going to arise in your own heart because you still have a fallen nature, still have a sin nature. But you will encounter this. You watch Oprah, and Oprah has on her show one day and, and on her book list some guy who writes a book about uh, the wonderful deliverance and peace in life that he's found in his different philosophy. And she claims to be a religious person, and he claims to be a religious person. And boy, they've got a whole long list of people who claim to have found peace and life in this. Maybe that makes some sense. Interesting. Seems like there's some changed lives there. Maybe I should listen to that. Changed life stories or not, does it match what God has said? And if not, it is false. Quick answer is no, it doesn't match, and yes, it is false. You're going to find that. There are powers out there. We, we talk about the, the, the magic and the occult as if it's all a sham. Some of it isn't a sham, is, is a sham. Some of it's true. Some of it's real power. There are other powers out there. The text assumes it. Were there not two of the ten miracles in, in Moses, in Pharaoh's court there, were not two of the ten miracles copied? They were. They couldn't do the next eight, but they did the first two. The Old Testament also shows a medium talking to a dead person. Really happened. That stuff can happen. We in our Western minds don't think it can. It can. It does. And it's no evidence that there's, any, that there's anything true in it. Under God's control, it's not of God because it doesn't match the Word of God. You need to watch for that. But I think probably the greatest temptation for all of us is going to be the intimate relationships. Spouse, friend, brother. There are some of us here today married but present without your spouse. Because your spouse is at home arguing with you on Saturday night. You can go if you want to. I really don't think it's really worth the time. What is that? That is an unstated argument. You can go if you want to, but if you were wise like me, you wouldn't. I think we can worship God anywhere, so I'm going to go worship Him at the golf course. Or in the mountains hiking, or right here on the couch with the NFL. 
That's the argument coming to some of you from your spouses. And now they aren't deliberately saying, honey, let's go after another God and worship him. They might be verbally with their mouths saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in all that. I just don't think going to church is really worth it. But what they're actually saying is, I don't believe all of that. I give my life to my first allegiance is my own comfort, my own perspective, my own priorities, the golf course, the mountains, the NFL, whatever, fill in the blank. And I'm sure if there are women, it would be different things. I think probably most commonly, though, it's husbands saying that at home with the wives here. That, that's going to be a reality in some of your lives. Some of you who are teenagers live in families, maybe older youths, live in families where the real God is your education, sports, and family vacations. That's what drives your family. You're growing up in that with a constant enticement, a constant call. Here's what your life should really be given to with enough God sprinkled in to make that all work out. But what we're really after here, what really will deliver you to good and blessing is if you do well in high school, do well in college, get a good career, a nice family with enough money to go on vacations. That's what will be life for you. And clearly, plain as day, you know your family does not revolve around the worship of the Lord. You know it doesn't. Obviously, there's a message here for parents, but some of you are kids growing up in that with a message every day drawing you. It's very difficult for you then, isn't it, to honor your father and mother by obeying them and also hold fast to the Lord your God. That's going to be hard for you. What that means in any given situation... I can't say because I have no idea what all the different situations would be. But the point is that if you in your mind will say, I want to resist all attempts to lure me away from him. That's a good starting place to evaluate. What does that mean in this situation here? This gets very tricky when it gets into families. Probably some of you are imagining that right now. Your family relationships, the wow of power, the the size of the audience that believes and follows this, a whole city believes this, and they still have to resist it. All that is irrelevant. What the Word of God says is the judge. Does what they say point me to, draw me to this God, the one who has revealed himself, the one that I know? He commands you and woos you. Resist all such evil. But it's not just enough to individually resist this. We have a corporate responsibility. Individually and corporately. The community as a whole needs to act against this, which is the other thrust of the passage and takes us to the second command. The second commandment is a corporate one. 
The Lord commands us corporately to purge the evil from our midst. Commands us corporately to purge the evil from the midst. From our midst. It is not just enough to personally resist it. It is. It is not enough. We have a corporate identity. We have a corporate identity as a people, and we have to react against this evil as well. If you don't, if you don't respond corporately, walk through the passage there. You don't respond corporately to the first two. You might hear that person performing the miracle or showing the power display or giving evidence that this might work in life. And you might say, no way. I see where my life is found. I look to the cross. I hope in Him. He is the one who brings blessing to me. I'm going to hold fast to Him. But this guy keeps talking. He keeps luring. And you didn't buy it, but your child did. Or the person sitting next to you did. Two or three of them, and they're drawn this way, and pretty soon you end up with a whole city. It's not just enough for us individually to say, I'm not going to listen to that. We have to stop this among the community. To respond against that, because it is the death of the community that's at stake here. It will influence, it will continue to draw people away. Even if it didn't draw anybody away, what it says publicly is we are a community that is tremendously concerned with the Lord our God. He has given us this commandment that He is to be first in our affections. And we were okay with other people amongst us talking about how no it isn't. Our message is that the Lord is God and that other things are too. We tolerate both those messages in our midst. We speak both of those messages. Come, depending on who you sit next to, it's going to depend on which message you hear. Depending on who's in your small group, who you have lunch with, that's going to determine which message you hear. We can't allow that. It confuses people, it dishonors God. We corporately have to act. And He commands us corporately to act. To abandon this glorious good hope is heinous and deadly. So God in grace, you got to catch that, because I think probably a lot of us read this chapter and think, like, where is there any grace in that? It's grace to the community. It's grace to the community to preserve and save them. And so he in grace commands us to act. Last sentence of verse 5, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Or if you have the, the uh, a footnote in your Bible, it's going to say evil person or evil one. Which actually is not a commandment, it's a statement of fact. And if you have um, an ESV or an NAS in your hand, you see the word so there. It indicates this is a, a statement that's dependent on a previous commandment. Kill them, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst. What he's really after is purging the evil from the midst. Stone them, and therefore, thus, in this way, you will purge the evil. That's what he's after. God says this throughout Deuteronomy, in fact. This is the first time we see it. We're not going to look at all these passages. You can jot them down. We'll come to them eventually. But just listen. Jot them down or just listen. Chapter 17, verses 7 and 12. Chapter 19, verses 13 and 19. Chapter 21, verses 9 and 21. Chapter 22, verses 21, 22, and 24. Chapter 24, verse 7. That's a number of times. 
In all those different places, God is putting his finger on particular sins. Now, in all the rest of this, the rest of these chapters, he's talking about all kinds of different sins. But there are some particular ones that are so heinous that present such a threat that if they took root, they would destroy the community. And so he says, this, these, this one right here must be strongly reacted against. He issues the death penalty, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst. It's in all of those places. He requires, he commands corporately that his people respond by cleansing the covenant community of such evil, purging the evil from their midst. So how are we to do that today? This is where we get to the, what's changed? Because I don't know any churches that stone anybody. Not today, at least. What are we to do? Well, I mean, maybe we should start a, a political campaign to get a federal law passed requiring obedience to the God of the Bible punishable by death. Maybe not a federal law, maybe a state law in Utah. That would not pass. Nor is it wise. It's not what we're supposed to do. Maybe we should build a stoning pit out back. Or maybe what we say is, okay, thank goodness none of this applies to us anymore. I see the principle here. But there really isn't much beyond that, because since Jesus has come, stuff has changed. That's about all I can say about that. Probably that's where most of us end up. We know we're not supposed to go down the legal route. We know we're not supposed to stone people. We know that Jesus has come and changed some stuff, but we don't really, we don't have much beyond that. It's probably where most of us are. And obviously there's some truth to that. When... Christ came, obviously something changed. God didn't change. God still thinks that he's God. God still thinks that therefore that means he's supposed to be the most important thing in all of the universe, and especially in the lives of his people. So the first commandment still stands. His moral law still stands. God hasn't changed. His moral law hasn't changed. But what did change was the nature of the covenant and the nature of the covenant community. Now, there's a lot to think about in all this. And the further you go into it, the more you'll find disagreement amongst Christians, because this is, this is some confusing stuff here. But at least at this point, everybody agrees. The covenant changed, and the nature of the covenant community changed. God's people are different. No longer is the covenant community ethnically, geographically, and politically defined. Think of it like an, like an old river that for centuries has run in a channel. And it's cut. Now it's a deep channel. It's in those banks. And you can look at it and you say, that's an old river. Maybe it's cut the Grand Canyon out or something like that. I see a really deep ravine that this river has cut, the channel. But there also is, along with it, existing a, a word for the future, a, a prophecy, if you will. Maybe you could even look at the landscape and you could see a floodplain. And you could say, okay, it's in this channel, has been for a long time, but it's going to leap the banks at some point. It's going to flood at some point. And that's what happened when Christ came. Christ came... When God became flesh, he came 
and he flooded the river of life over the banks and broke it out of this ethnic, geographic, political channel. The covenant that God had in the Old Testament was with a particular people. Ethnically, politically, geographically defined. Now, the new covenant is with every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all over the globe. Incidentally, that means that you can be in covenant with God. You can be the covenant community. You can be a member of the covenant community, even if you're not born Jewish. Romans 4 says that Abraham is the one who receives all the blessings. And it also says that Abraham is the father of all those who believe, whether they're Jews or not. What you have to do is believe, not be Jewish. You can be a part of the covenant community. You can experience the blessing of God. How? By believing. Christ has come and made a great big change when He came and went to the cross. What He did there was He made a new... Think of covenant as arrangement. Contract. Deal, if you will. He made a new way for us to relate to God. Now, it certainly is connected to the Old Testament. But just to think of it very simply, what he said was, here's the deal. You are lawbreakers. You break the law. You, the first commandment, you start there and you keep on moving. You break all of the law. I am going to become flesh and keep the law. God in flesh, living perfectly, keeping the law exactly perfectly. Why? So that we can trade. This is what the cross is about. So that when I go to the cross as a perfect, sinless man to die, you can hang your law breaking on me. And I can give to you my law keeping and write on your account righteous. Before the judgment seat of God, righteous. Why? Because he trusted Christ and hung his sin on Christ's cross and took Christ's righteousness, his perfect law-keeping, unto himself. So my account before God says righteous on it. Yours can too. By faith, embrace Jesus. If you do that, that's how you become a member of the covenant community. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. Nothing to do with where you live is completely about do you believe. That's what Jesus did when he came. And when that happened, the covenant community changed, leaped out of the banks and spread all over the whole of the globe. So we are no longer a political state. We are ruled by a king whose kingdom is within. Now, one day... It will be physically displayed over all of the earth. And at that time, the king will exercise civil law according to his will everywhere. But in this age, right now, he has given civil law to kings of the earth, not to his people. It's not our job. We don't pass laws that govern the land. 
We don't pass capital punishment laws. We don't require people to live as if they are in allegiance to God. The new covenant is a covenant that's made in the heart. We invite people to come and live in it. We plead with people to come and live in it. We do not force them to come and live in it. Christ has changed the nature of the new covenant. So to purge the evil out of our midst, well, the midst has changed. So how are we to do this? How are we to remove the evil out of our midst? How are we to encourage the covenant community to follow after God? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's in the New Testament, um, about a hundred pages from the end, depending on how big your Bible is. Book of Romans, then 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. And he received a letter from a church in Corinth. And he's responding to the various issues that were raised in that letter. And in chapter 5, he has before him, as he's reading this letter, he's come now to an issue that is the exact issue raised in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Sexual immorality within the covenant community. Sexual immorality within the covenant community. And in verses 1 and 2, he kind of sketches out the situation. And he says there, kind of in shorthand, recounting what's going on, boldly and unrepentantly, that's critical, unrepentantly, in the church, that's critical, so it's in the covenant community, he has no concern for what's going on out there in the world. It's none of our business. Unrepentantly, in the church, you have a man who is living in sexual immorality. And then he chastises them for that. You're proud of how accepting and how diverse you are. You should be grieved and mourning over this. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Sound a little familiar? What he's discussing here in this chapter is church discipline. And he begins to give some more detail about that. He's talking about the process by which a person who claims to be a Christian, who is claiming to be in this community, is embracing openly, unrepentantly resisting change on a clear sin issue, how is that person to be dealt with? He's explaining that here. He says, I'm writing, verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who is guilty of this sexual morality or those other things that he lists there. Not meaning that he's done it, but meaning that he's walking in it. Remember the context. Boldly, unrepentantly, sitting in the pew saying, this is fine. Do not associate with such a one. He claims to be able to live like this and be in the church. Not meaning those outside the church. That's not my concern. Verse 13, God will take care of those outside the church. You purge the evil person from among you. You see that in verse 13. Where did Rabbi Paul get that? Deuteronomy. Where it is again and again and again and again the answer to how one acts with this covenant community with people who are blatantly living in it rejecting the God of the covenant. You purge the evil from among you. 
How? Paul tells us, here in this new covenant, not by stoning and by killing, by removing them from the covenant. In other words, sending them out. Now, there's a lot more to be said about church discipline. And I'm going to come back to this and preach specifically about church discipline when we come to chapter 22. Because it comes up, I think it fits better there. But the point is that he says our covenant community has changed. It's no longer a a physical entity, it's a spiritual entity. It's not a national entity, it's spiritual, it's on the inside. How do you deal with people who are claiming to be okay and fine in the community and attempting to lead people or to, to proclaim a message, if you will, that is contrary to this? What do you do with that? Well, certainly you check it out to see, is this right? I mean, are you really saying that? Do you realize that's wrong? And you engage with it. But at the point where it becomes resistant to change, as the people in Deuteronomy 13 are saying, I am not only resistant to change, I'm attempting to draw people along with me. At that point you say, then you're out. Have nothing to do with such ones. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Not by the death penalty, but by church discipline and excommunication. That's the very end of the process. And there's a lot that leads up to that. And the process of church discipline is a process, believe it or not, is a process of grace for the person and for the church community. It is God's blessing to us. And it is also His command to us. We cannot tolerate people in the covenant community undermining the covenant community. For their sake, for our sake, for the people out there's sake, and for God's sake. To ex means to take from, excommunicate, to take from communion or communication out from the community. That's what that word means. We are to corporately obey what God requires in Deuteronomy 13, not by execution, but by excommunication. His command to us corporately. There's a lot more to say about that. But for our sake this morning, church, this chapter is trying to drive home this point. We, individually and we, corporately, must wake up and be extremely aware of lures, temptations, that will draw us into breaking the first commandment and therefore draw us into death. We resist that personally. We do not listen to it personally. And once we have become very sure, after the long process of church discipline, after we become very sure that this is resistant to change, it will not yield to the Scriptures, we cast it out. And so we purge the evil from our midst. He commands that, and he even woos us as a corporate community. Where does 17 and 18 end up in Deuteronomy 13? 17 and 18 ends up with, and so you shall remove the anger of God off the community. What, what he's saying is that if we try to be a community that says, we are after you, God, we are, we are concerned with you, we are hard after you, and we tolerate this in our midst, the anger of God rests on the community. 
But as we remove that, his anger is removed. And what follows, he then again deals with us in mercy and grace and blessing as promised. That's where 17 and 18 end. If we obey him, we walk in his blessing. We experience his goodness. There's a warning in that and there's also a wooing. I will deal with you in mercy and in grace. I know you sin. I know you're weak. But you cannot say to me, God, we are weak and we sin, while tolerating this and not acting against it. Act. Plead for mercy and grace and I will give it to you. The Lord our God commands us to purge the evil from our midst. So let me pray, and what I'm going to pray is that this will sit on us properly. Because I anticipate for some of us, that, yeah, you, you know this, you get it, you agree with it, and for some of us this is very new, and there in you, there's some uncertainty, maybe some clear, mm. so I'm going to pray that this sits on you properly, that God has his way in your heart. Which obviously what I mean there is that God conforms you to what I just said because I'm convinced it's true. So I'm going to pray for that. May he give grace. Father, you are a king. You are a ruler and you are the rightly supreme one. And you also are incredibly concerned to pour out grace on your people. What you tell us here in this passage is the path to experience your grace. What might be hard obedience. And so I pray, Lord, would you give even grace before the grace. Would you give grace to open our eyes to it. Lord, there are some of my brothers and sisters here and some here who... who aren't Christians, but are thinking about it in some way. And this might sound strange to them. And so I pray, Lord, particularly for them, would you open their eyes to your truth? Would you create dialogues between us that are covered by humble submission to your word, that are most clearly concerned about what you have said and not what plays well in public or what many people follow or what seems to be accompanied by power or what near, dear relatives of us say. Make us to be a people who are dependent upon your word and what it says. Give us the ability to talk about it and so grow in our understanding of it. For those of us here, Lord, who who don't particularly have a hang-up with this, just need to grow in our personal resistance of it, personal resistance of, of the lures that exist. Lord, help us to remember your wooing, to see your command, yes, and to remember your wooing. Would you give us grace, Lord, because that's very hard. In some sense, it doesn't really matter what, what is believed right now. It matters what's believed Wednesday afternoon. And so on Wednesday afternoon and Thursday morning, will you give grace to your people to remember the gospel and remember that they know you, that in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no reason to walk away. Remind them of that. Give them a strong assurance of it. 
Lord, use this passage to shape our church, to be a community that honors you, the type of community that you want us to be, to make us a holy community. There are sober commands here. Use them to sanctify us as a people. I pray this for your honor and for our good. This is where life lies, so I pray it for our good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.